It's good to see everyone again. We hope you had a nice Easter. Karen and I, two weeks ago on Easter Sunday, were in uh, Finland. We visited Sweden and Finland and had a wonderful ministry there in several churches. A little bit colder there, but the believers are warm and friendly. In fact, the churches that we visited were very vibrant, enthusiastic churches, living and growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, if I had to give a good reason for that, it's because, like this church, they are based in the Word of God and a clear understanding of God's gospel and how to be saved, to live, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, so many times, it seems that churches can uh, get sidetracked by things that steal that vibrancy, that growth, and that, that joyful spirit from them. And we're going to talk about that today and the church that was in danger of doing exactly that and falling into that error. So let me have a brief word of prayer with you. Father, we thank you for uh, the word of God, living and powerful, and we pray that you would use it to discern our hearts, our motives, our thoughts today, and then apply it to our lives that we might live according to it. So give us discernment and understanding, and may the Spirit be our guide and our teacher. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember some time ago, I spoke with someone who uh, was a pastor in my local town. He's from the Worldwide Church of God. I don't know if you know about that group. It used to be a group that was uh, founded by a guy named Armstrong, and um, and it was extremely legalistic, meaning that they had rules for everything. They worshipped on Sabbath on Saturday because they thought that was the Sabbath. They tithe the you know exactly ten uh, percent as required. Uh, they couldn't go to medical doctors. They did everything but offer sacrifices, like in the Old Testament. But they tried to keep the law. And after Armstrong died, and another man became president of this organization, he sent uh, his son and another another Bible student on the task of discerning what the Bible actually said about all of these rules. And they came back to him with a startling discovery that they were no longer under the rules and the laws of the Old Testament, that, but that we were under the new covenant today in a day of grace, and that they didn't have to keep the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, to find uh, favor in God's eyes, that we were under uh, Christ and his grace and his principles and his commands. And it totally revolutionized the organization so that they believe very much like you and I do today. And this pastor and I were just sharing about this truth. And I invited him to um, an event that our church was having. Uh, they were having a, uh, uh, they called it a Cajun feed, and they would boil up a lot of shrimp and, and feed the men. It was a men's event. And I invited them to that, and he said, well, you'll, you'll have to show me how to eat shrimp. I've never eaten them because under the law, we weren't allowed to eat them. So I said, well, I can manage that. We can show you how to eat shrimp. But he had a new joyful spirit about him, as anyone does who discovers what it means to come out of legalism or, or that, that uh, organization that's controlled by rules and laws and into the freedom of God's grace. There's even a church in our hometown, another group. They, they don't even have a name because they think names are wrong. And they're so legalistic that they would scrutinize the music of every person in the church that was listening to and uh, all the activities people were doing and how they dressed. And they had so many rules on top of rules that if you broke a rule, eventually you would get shunned or banished from the church. 
and they began shunning and banishing each other. And, uh, and I think it just kind of disintegrated because they divided so many times. But some of those people have drifted into our church and they found a new freedom uh, under the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that we teach. And uh, they're relieved to know that we're not under the Old Testament law anymore and that we don't have to keep rules for rules' sake to please God, but that Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at Colossians 2 today uh, to a church that had drifted or was in danger of drifting into that kind of attitude from the freedom that they had in Christ. Paul saw them on this road that would steal their joy, that would kill grace, and ruin the church, a church that he loved and that was dear to him. And so he was talking to them about this attitude, not only of legalism, but about adding anything to Jesus Christ as our uh, sufficiency for godliness and growth. Because it's not only rules, but they were looking to spirits and angels and philosophies and, and anything else. It was like anything plus Christ or anything but Christ, really, was what they were in danger of. And he is warning them. Um, and what he's warning them, and what the reason he's warning them, is because he knows that their attitudes about the law and about their visions and the worship of angels and things like that would not produce godliness, that only Jesus Christ could do that. And that's why he had started the book out in chapter one, if you remember, by exalting Christ as the preeminent one, who he says is the head of the church in chapter one, verse eight. He is the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. In other words, Jesus Christ is over everything. There's no one who is above him. And then, if you also remember chapter 2, because of that, he's able to say, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, chapter 2, verse 10, you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. You can't get any better than that than being in Christ and having Christ in you. What in the world can you add to that? Is there a list or a formula? Absolutely not. And so here he's going, after exalting Christ as the preeminent one and saying that you are complete in him, he's going to tell them uh, where they are in danger of going off of that track. And uh, so we left off last time at the end of verse 15, and after he discussed all the things that Christ has done as the preeminent one, and their completeness included the forgiveness of sins, and, and he has disarmed principalities and powers. And because of that, verse 16, he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. In view of all that he has said about Jesus Christ and his sufficiency and his preeminency, because of that, don't let anyone come and judge you and say, hey, you're not doing enough. You have to keep some of these festivals and some of these Old Testament holidays. Now, there's nothing wrong with keeping holidays in and of themselves, is there? We do that ourselves. We keep Christmas. We keep uh, Easter as holidays. But we understand them as something that points to someone who is above all, that is Jesus Christ. We don't keep the holidays as a, as a ritual way of earning favor with God. But they were in danger of going back and keeping those Jewish holidays 
which really were just shadows of things to come, who was Jesus Christ, who would fulfill the meaning of those holidays, all the sacrifices and all the, the festivals and all the holidays found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so if you have the real thing, the fulfillment, why go back and lean upon or resort to or depend upon the shadow of things to complete your Christianity and your spiritual maturity? And so by doing this, they were focusing on the external rituals instead of the internal motives and the, the internal reality of the relationship that they had with Jesus Christ. And so the first problem, he's, the first warning he's giving them is about legalism in verses 16 and 17. And if you resort to going back under the law, you will be judged by that same law. Legalism focuses on external things, not the internal motives and the internal heart issues, but the external rituals and things that we do. As an example of something of focusing on external things, we used to have uh, a few folks in our church. We see all kinds of people go through a church, you know, uh, when we first started the church, and um, they tended to focus on the external things how many church services you had, how many church services people were going to. And, and because of that, a judgmental attitude emerged, which is always the result of legalism because somebody's never keeping the rules just like you want them to. And so you become proud of yourself and judgmental of other people. Well, the church bought a, a vacuum cleaner, a dirt devil vacuum cleaner. And one day I walked into the church and this woman was spray painting the word devil off of the vacuum cleaner. I guess she didn't want the devil in the church as if he could come in a plastic casing. But it's a focus on the external things when really in reality, if you knew this person, there were many internal issues of the heart that she wasn't dealing with. And uh, of course, that relationship didn't last too long. Uh, they eventually left to find somebody as spiritual as they were, I guess, but, which is always the case with legalism. So it raises traditions and external rituals to the level of God's word. And that's why Jesus so condemned uh, that kind of legalistic attitude when he was on earth. His most angry moments seemed to be against those who elevated the law or traditions to the level of God's word. Because you really don't make it the level of God's word. You make God's word subservient to the traditions that you're espousing or trying to keep. You know, and the church is in danger of doing this all the time, of taking things that we, we use as traditions and turning them into laws, absolute laws. And uh, the churches differ on the issues that they take sides with. But, you know, some, some churches say, well, you have to have an evening service or you have to have a Wednesday night service. Is there anything wrong with those? Absolutely not. But does the Bible say that? Do we stand upon that as God's absolute will or how to, how to observe communion or how to pray? or what kind of music that we use, uh, whether to give an invitation after the, the uh, message in the morning, uh, whether there should be a Sunday school or not. All of these things can be good things. But when churches teach them as if it's, it's God teaching them, then we are elevating traditions to the level of God's word. So we have to be careful to understand what is what, is what God says and what is what man says and has established as a practice or tradition and allow sometimes the flexibility to differ in the traditions as long as we're keeping 
what God says. So the problem of legalism is raising these externals to the level of God's word. And the problem with legalism is that it detracts from the real thing, which is Jesus Christ himself. And that's why uh, the Apostle Paul says that those things were a shadow of the things to come. Uh, the substance is Christ. And when we put the emphasis on external things, we're really uh, detracting from the reality, which is in Jesus Christ. We're choosing the shadow over the substance. You know, sometimes when people build a new house, as some of my friends have done, you know, they choose to live in maybe a small travel trailer in, on the lot as they're building their new house. And so the travel trailer is just there in anticipation of that new house that's going to be built. But once they have a big brand new house, it, wouldn't it be silly for them to continue to live in the, in the travel trailer? Of course it would, because that was just a shadow that told them something else was coming. And now that the reality's here, why live in the trailer anymore? And so Christians should not live in the trailer. We've anticipated the coming of Christ was the fulfillment of the law, and all the sufficiency of, of God would be ours in him. And he is here, he has come, and he has brought us God's grace. He has shown the Father to us, and we, we can now have that relationship directly with the Father through him. So why should we deal or settle with only the shadow? So Christ came, and he said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He meant that the law was no longer binding for us as Christians today. Those who are in Christ are no longer bound to the law. We're dead to the law because Christ died to the law because he filled it once and forever. Now, the, the problem with legalism is that if you start out to keep the law, you're going to be judged by the law. And he says, let no one judge you in food or drink because people can get that judgmental attitude. Because no one who depends on their own performance can ever perform perfectly. And so James 2.10 says, is, if you break the law in one part, you're guilty of breaking all of it. And so anybody who tries to obtain uh, perfection or maturity by keeping the law is always going to fall short and always going to find something that they can be judged on. And the law will not be their friend. It will be their, their judge. It will condemn them because no performance is perfect. The problem with performance is not only perfect, but it leads to pride because somebody who can keep rituals better than other people will look down upon those who can't do it as well. So what's the solution for legalism? Well, the solution would be to go directly to Jesus Christ, to live in the grace that he's provided and let him be your life as he lives his life through you. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life, I now live in the flesh or the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul saw himself, his old self, as being crucified with Christ, and now the new life of Christ was living in and through him. And the book of Galatians has the same theme, really, and, and discusses the same issues, and it tells us there to walk in the Spirit. That's how Christ expresses his life to us, when we walk in the Spirit, not according to the law, not in the bondage to the law, but in the freedom of the Spirit. And if we do so, Galatians tells us we'll bear the fruit of the Spirit. The path to holiness is not by keeping a list of rules. It's by walking in the Spirit and letting the life of Christ exhibit itself in and through us. That's one of the warnings Paul had for them. Another warning seems to be about their, the issue of mysticism, and he warns them that they'll be cheated out of their reward. Chapter 2 and verse 18 and 19 says, let, let no one cheat you 
of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. There seemed to be a problem also in this church uh, of some form of mysticism. And by mysticism, we mean worshiping things that are imagined or things that are not uh, stated in, in the Word of God. We're talking about things like, uh, he talks about false humility or self-abasement, denying yourself certain things to have some kind of experience, uh, the worship of angels, maybe the worship of, of visions and things like this. You know, it's really a popular trend in our church today that many do seek uh, this kind of mystical experience, even in good Bible-believing churches, and tend to put more emphasis on the mystical experiences than they do the revealed objective Word of God. A case in point is that about every five years, you see a book coming on the bestseller list about somebody dies and goes to heaven and then writes about their experience, and it becomes a bestseller. And then everybody forgets about it. And then five years later, somebody else dies and goes to heaven and writes a book about it. Well, you know, that, that was a big bestseller the last few years. I think it was called Heaven is for Real. They made a movie out of it or something. And, and a preacher and his family became very rich, rich with this issue. But one who had written a book before that uh, about a boy who, what's it called? A boy went to heaven. The boy who came back from heaven named Alex Malarkey. And uh, he told his parents that he died and went to heaven and created this big story. And they wrote a book. It became a bestseller. This was the, sec the book before this popular one today. And he just renounced the whole thing and said, I made the whole thing up. The Christians were so gullible and wanting that mystical experience that the Bible doesn't, doesn't provide. Uh, but something more in our search for something more. And so things like fasting and denying ourselves was, Worshipping of uh, angels and wrong perceptions about the role of angels. Uh, even the church, that portion of uh, Christianity that, that worships saints, dead believers, as someone who is spectacular because of what they've done, is misled because there is not a biblical basis uh, for that. One of the things I get tired of hearing is, well, heaven has gained another angel when someone dies. Well, that's a, that's a notion that's not in the Bible, isn't it? Does the Bible say that when we die, we become angels? It doesn't say that at all. It says we go to be in the presence of the Lord. One day, we'll, our bodies will be resurrected. We'll be joined to our bodies. But it never says anything about human beings becoming angels. Angels were from the very beginning of creation. And yet, that's just kind of a mystical notion that floats around, and people don't question it. But my friends, what does the Bible say? It doesn't teach that at all. So the problem with this kind of mysticism is it detaches from Jesus Christ in an attempt to add something more to our spiritual experience. And when we cut ourselves off from the reality that is in Christ, seeking something more, the reality is we actually get something less. We can't get power from angels and from visions and, and from all these mystical notions and from denying ourselves uh, different pleasures in life. That's not what brings us power. Power comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the result is, he says, that you could lose your reward. Why? Because reward comes from serving the Lord Jesus Christ and obeying him. 
There's no reward in serving make-believe notions about angels or special saints or mystical visions or experiences. We're not to give credence to them unless we have a basis in the Bible. And yet some people find that their boast of spirituality comes from these kind of things. They can sell a book. They can get a TV show. They can become a popular preacher if they can have a bigger vision than the next guy. And yet what did Paul say when he had his vision in uh, 2 Corinthians 12? He says, he said he uses a third person. He says, a man I know. He doesn't even want to use it himself. He doesn't even want to claim it himself. He's not boasting about the vision he had. He's only teaching. The point of the teaching was that Christ was sufficient in his suffering. So true spirituality is not defined by one's experiences uh, or, or visions or mystical type of experiences, but is defined by a relationship to the head, who is Jesus Christ himself. And true reward comes from serving the Lord Jesus Christ and not any false, phony, or make-believe notions that we might have. What's the solution for this kind of mysticism? Well, he says uh, in verse 19, holding fast to the head. That's what he had said in, in chapter 1, verse 18, the verse we looked at, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And we have to hold fast to him. In chapter 1, verse 23, he said, if you continue in the faith, he talks about how to become holy and blameless um, in Christ's sight. You have to continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Not talking about continuing for salvation. He's talking about continuing so that we'll be blameless and holy at our presentation at the judgment seat of Christ. So hold on to the head and continue in him. Don't let somebody promise you something more so that you get off of that truth of following Jesus Christ. Continue in the faith, the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a third thing he's warning them about, verses 20 through 23. We'll call it asceticism. Asceticism is when we deny ourselves uh, um, certain pleasures in an attempt to be holy or get closer to God. And he says it really is not going to be a help to holiness for you. So verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ, or and we, we could say, well, since you died with Christ, which was true, from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerns things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. When we deny ourselves, it looks good, but it doesn't purify the heart. That's what he's saying. So this problem of asceticism uh, sometimes is rooted in the notion that uh, that the body and things physical are evil. And therefore, if we deny the body and, and its evil desires, we can be pure. And so they have all kinds of prohibitions for the flesh about what you can eat and, and what you can drink and things like that. But he says, you've died to the basic principles of the world. What are the basic principles of the world? It seems 
that these ascetic requirements about do's and don'ts because he goes on to list them, about not touching and tasting and, and handling certain things. So ex uh, interpretations or extensions of the law about what we can do and not do. He says, you've died to that. You've moved on. And, and now you have the, the, the reality, the Christ. Don't go back and live under the basic principles of uh, outdoor plumbing and, uh, and tin roofs and, um, and cramped space in, in the travel trailer. You've got the reality. And so that they um, <clears throat> believed perhaps in a false dichotomy between body and spirit, that the body was evil and of no value and that spiritual realities were all that counted. So deny the body and the flesh, they said. And we have to be careful about that, about placing uh, spiritual value on, on things, but also realizing, uh, as in fact we'll study in 1 Corinthians 6, that the body does have a special relationship to God and is holy. But one of the problems is uh, that they, they considered things evil. and. Um, you know, Jesus said, like in Mark 7, he said, it's not what goes into the body that's evil, but what comes out of the body that's evil. And yet, um, many times people consider places or things themselves evil. Let me give an example. We call, many people would call this room the sanctuary, which is okay because we understand what they're saying. But what many people interpret that to mean is that this is a holy room as if there's something sanctified about the beams and the plaster and the carpet in this room. Now, does the Bible teach that, or is that just a notion of men? The Bible doesn't teach about, about a sanctuary. The only sanctuary I know of is in the tabernacle or in the temple. But the church, as a building, is not a sanctuary. Where is the sanctuary? It's here. Who's the temple of the Holy Spirit? It is us, the church, or even as an individual. So. When we get a notion that this is the sanctuary, then, of course, you can't eat in the sanctuary, and you can't drink in the sanctuary, and you can't run in the sanctuary. Now, I'm not saying you should run or eat and drink in the church. Sometimes it's good to have rules for kids or adults. We understand that. You want to protect your carpet. But it's because you want to protect your carpet, not because it's a special holy place. Is that clear? Okay. So our reasons for doing things are very important. And, uh, you know, I kind of uh, have to say this with a little bit of, a, of a humor because we had a, used to have a lady, a wonderful dear lady in our church, but whenever we had a potluck dinner, she would never stay afterwards and eat with us. She, she, she would say, Christians shouldn't eat in the church. And so she would never stay and eat. The fellowship was never valued over her notion that we were in a holy place somehow, and, and uh, God rest her soul. She meant well. Uh, but she was a little bit misled on that, but we let her go on that. Didn't argue with her. Her heart was good. So uh, asceticism does not help with our holiness. And um, it actually denies uh, the relationship and the power and the unity that we have with Jesus Christ. We have died to the basic principles of the law, and we have died to sin since we are in Christ. And so uh, why go back to these basic do's and don'ts that we think will purify us? They are of no help to holiness. In Romans chapter 7, Paul relates his experience of trying to be sanctified by the do's and don'ts. And he says, you know, I, I do the things I don't want to do. 
but I, they don't help me control my flesh. And that's what he's saying here is that they have an appearance of wisdom, verse 23, but they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The only thing that the law does is it stirs up the flesh. The do's and don'ts make us want to do and don't. <laughs> it, makes us want, it makes us want what we shouldn't have and do what we shouldn't do. If I said to you today, don't think about that wonderful fried chicken we're having for lunch. Just don't think about it. I forbid you to think about fried chicken and how crispy and spicy it is. What are you doing? Well, you're thinking about it. I've provoked you with the law and made you want fried chicken. I sure hope we're having some myself. Now I'm getting distracted. But do's and don'ts are of no help towards holiness. It produces pride, hypocrisy, and a judgmental spirit. The spirit of the Pharisee who says, I'm glad that I'm not like others. Because I don't do that. And the truth is, one of the things they, these people, often, these legalists don't do is they often don't love other people. So Paul is very concerned about the church, that they are straying from their faith in the preeminent Christ and looking to other things to, for their spiritual experience and maturity and completeness. And it is a strong danger, not only to the Colossian church, but it's a strong danger in today's church as well where we find different strands and trends and tendencies towards legalism in some churches, keeping of rules and traditions on the level with the Word of God, on mystical experiences or on the do's and don'ts of life in the world. But the problem with legalism and, and these keeping of lists is that it makes spirituality mechanical or material. It creates an artificial standard uh, for acceptance with God. When the Bible says that our acceptance comes through the righteousness that Christ has given to us and our rewards come from obedience to him. Jesus rebuked in Matthew 23, the Pharisees and their attitude with some very, very strong words. As I said, the strongest words of his ministry and preaching were against those who were legalistic. But listen how outwardly they did the right things, but their hearts were far from God. I'm reading from Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Is that good to pay tithes? Well, the law said to do it, yeah. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inward are inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, even so also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus was saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you look good on the outside. You even tithe how much salt you put on your hamburger. But inside your whitewashed tombs, your, your dead men's bones, full of hypocrisy. And, and the scribe and the Pharisee wants to take those same standards and laws and impose them upon 
their people, upon the Jewish people at that time. And so the people of Jewish times, uh, of Jesus' day and time, were, were oppressed by this standard of righteousness, this false standard of righteousness. Jesus came and preached to them, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, not just outwardly, but exceed it because they have no inward righteousness. And your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. And he said that, hey, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Pharisees were imposing a heavy burden of law keeping on the people. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He was able to say that because he fulfilled the law himself. The problem with legalism is that it makes spirituality mechanical or material. Uh, but it also really avoids facing real issues, the real motives and desires of our heart, the failures of our heart uh, in our life, and the lovelessness that we sometimes have. We don't have to love people if we can make them conform and we can just do the right things on the outside. And so legalism often doesn't deal with the heart. And that's why it's crippling to Christians and can keep us from being mature. Remember when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, how he was criticized for doing that? They criticized him because he did something good on the Sabbath, but they didn't recognize the good he had done, that a man was walking who couldn't walk before. They were all worried about the external law-keeping and not the man himself who had benefited. I read an article some time ago in the newspaper about an apartment building in Jerusalem that was burning, and it was on a Sabbath day, and the Orthodox Jews didn't know whether they should call the fire department or not because it would be work to put the fire out. And so they, they debated it back and forth. And finally, they decided, yeah, we should call the fire department. But too late, the apartments burned down. It's always good to do good. But it avoids facing the real issues, like what are our motives? What are our desires? Why do we want to do that? Do we really love people, care about them? Legalism wants to control other people and keep them in bondage. See, the legalist always has the advantage because the one who makes the rules, you know when you're playing a game, card game or volleyball or whatever, Whoever makes the rules always has an advantage because he's making them to his and her advantage to begin with. And, and then he can always scrutinize them the best and he can call the shots from that point on. So whoever makes the rules has the advantage. Well, so it is in the church with legalism. Whoever decides what the standards of righteousness are usually conveniently molds them so that he or she can, can fulfill them best. And everybody else is inferior to their superior keeping of that standard. And so it, it subtly brings people into a bondage of guilt because they're not quite as good as the rules or the person making the rules and of fear because uh, God is not pleased and, and I, may, I must not be doing something right or even the, ultimately the fear that I could lose my salvation comes from that kind of an attitude. Someone said that God made birds, not bird cages. God made birds. He made people to be free, not to be in cages. He made them to realize uh, all the fullness of Christ in our lives, not to be controlled by others. One of the saddest things about the kind of attitude the Colossians faced was that it would reduce God to just a list. It would reduce Christianity to list keeping. It would really hide what is really important in what we call Christianity and faith, which is our heart attitude and the relationship that we can have with God through Jesus Christ. And so duty 
uh, becomes the basis of the relationship instead of love and gratitude. There's nothing wrong with duty. A soldier does his job. He does what he's told to do, what he's committed to do. He's doing his duty, and I'm glad of it. But it's not the same as a son who obeys their parents, his parents, because he loves them. One is a case as I have to. The other is a case I want to. Legalism says you have to. Christianity says I want to. And the Bible wants us to be motivated by I want to serve the Lord because of what he's done for me. The law expressed displeasure whenever it was broken or not fulfilled or when you fell short. Grace expresses God's pleasure at who we are as his children and invites us to enjoy a relationship with him, to walk in the spirit and to live our lives with him. And so don't allow legalism to creep into your life or into your church. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled in the yoke of bondage. Stand fast. Don't be tangled in bondage. It's very easy for us as believers to fall into seeking something more or imposing upon ourselves even a list of things that we have to do to be acceptable to God. Frankly, most religions are based upon that notion. that if I do A, B, C, D, sometimes all the way to Z, then I can be a good Christian. And so if I go to church or if I go to Mass every Sunday, if I take the communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, whatever it's called, every Sunday, then I'm a good person. But it's all focusing on the outside. What Jesus came and did was he came to cleanse us from the inside out by giving us a new birth, the forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that only happens through faith in him who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And when our hope is in him and not in anything that we can do, we can have that kind of life. And that life can be expressed through us. So if you're frustrated today because you don't feel like you can please God, you're not really keeping all the list of things that you have in mind to do or somebody else has given you to do, I've got good news for you. Jesus did away with that list. He paid the price. He fulfilled the law. He said, you can't do it anyway, so I've done it for you. Now, just enjoy a relationship with me. Be filled with the, my, let my spirit fill you and lead you and guide you, walk with you into holiness. And that's where the fullness of life is. Through the head of the church, the preeminent Lord Jesus Christ. So have you placed your faith in him for salvation and eternal life? Or are you still trying to earn it by the things you do outwardly? You never can do that. It's all Christ. He is sufficient. He is preeminent. He is the head. We are complete only in him. So, Father, I pray today, as we hear these words, that we would re re repent of any attitude of self-sufficiency and uh, any attitude that we can earn righteousness by the things that we do. And I pray instead that we might see Jesus Christ as our righteousness and trust only in him uh, for your acceptance and approval. And may our lives be in service to him out of love and gratitude, not because we fear you 
and with fear and trembling and guilt, but because we love you and are grateful for what you've done. And so guide us into grace, keep us from legalism, and help us to lead other people into the freedom that grace provides. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.